Does the best medicine mean the most expensive? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. Norton Hadler. Dr. Hadler is Professor of Medicine and Microbiology Immunology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and an attending rheumatologist at the University of North Carolina Hospital and has recently written the best-selling book, Worried Sick, A Prescription for Health in an Overtreated America. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation, Mari. To begin with, what were the principal themes that motivated you to write this particular book? Well, I'm a medical educator and have been for decades and decades. I've been on the faculty at Carolina for 35 years, and teaching at the bedside is my passion and career focus. And unfortunately in our country, the dissonance between what we understand to be the best of medicine based on evidence and what is practiced in our country is growing. It's growing quite loud and quite far. And in the past 10 years, I've set about trying to understand what I might be able to do about that for the sake of my patients and my students. And the answer is very little until we teach America that we don't have the best medicine and that we need to be able to ask every time a physician offers us an option, how do we know that this will really be advantageous to me? And so Worried Sick is the second of the books I'm writing on this topic, the intent to change the social construction of health in our country so that we might be able to get rational health care reform. Oh, I'm struck. When we hear we don't have the best medicine, the response I usually come up with, how could we when we have so many underserved, 40 million people with no health care and probably with an economy that's turning downward, maybe 80 million will lose or at least be without health insurance during some of this coming year. And we think of this as the people who are disadvantaged. It sounds like you think that the people with insurance or at least have coverage are maybe the ones who aren't getting the best care. Both groups are dreadfully misserved. The first group, for obvious reasons, uh, not only do they have no ready access to health care, but should they need it because a child fractured a leg or because of appendicitis or the like, they will run a certain risk of near bankruptcy. So that's unconscionable. But equally unconscionable is the fact that we are pouring a tremendous percentage of the wealth of this nation into the care of those people who are insured with almost no evidence, and to the contrary, with good evidence, that we are not advantaging them. So that compared to every other resource-advantaged country, our insured population is not advantaged by all that we do to them and for them. What were the events in your career that led you in this direction? I mean, when did you begin to feel or what made this apparent to you that this was indeed taking place? Well, if you're a bedside teacher who believes that the principles of teaching are to define the limits of certainty, which I do, it's a very Socratic approach, an approach I learned at the knee of some of the great American educators in the 60s and 70s and have honed myself, and lo and behold, the more I try to apply that level of razor to what is standard of care in the American medical scene, 
the more clear it was that we were no longer practicing evidence-based medicine. To the contrary, we were managing patients, and the primary motivation was a business model that had a monstrous appetite for money. You mentioned educators that you learn from. In your book, you talk about Karl Popper and Dan Fetterman, people who talked about evaluating certainties and being insightful. Do these teachers come into play in your training programs? Is that what you were referring to? Well, Popper was not a man I ever got to meet. I did read his earlier translations when I was at university. Dan Fetterman is one of my many role models. Dan is one of Harvard's premier educators. And I used to be amazed at how this man seemed to have an innate ability to explain clinical conundrums at the bedside. And then one day he took me aside and he said that almost every one of these seemingly extemporaneous moments was prepared, prepared in the way he reads, the way he thinks, and the way he learns. And so I set out decades and decades ago to try to emulate that. So I do a tremendous amount of bedside teaching and postgraduate education, and it looks like it's effortless, but I can assure you that I very seldom say anything without being able to tell you the references upon which I'm basing an assertion, and I demand that of my students, and I demand that of the care of the patient. And that is no longer the case in our country, and I do a quite a number of visiting professorships around this country and a tremendous amount abroad. And it's very uncomfortable in our country right now because of the tremendous demand at words like throughput, at talking about the ill as if they're units of care, and the tremendous financial pressures on the so-called providers, those of us who want to commit our lives to the care of a fellow human being. So this is a very difficult time for someone like me and has been for a decade. Most of the focus of my belief system runs into a practice setting that I find anathema. And that's why I'm writing these books. As I mentioned, this is an instructional book for the general audience. It is the second book. It is not meant to be a simple read. I have multiple object lessons in this book where I explain exactly what one needs to ask in order to understand whether or not particular form of care will benefit them. And as you know, each chapter has a shadow chapter, and the shadow chapter details the science and its limitations. The book probably has a thousand references. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Norton Hadler, who's professor of medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and we're discussing his very thought-provoking book, Worried Sick, A Prescription for Health in an Overtreated America. Who did you write this book for? You brought this up just a moment ago. Who, when you sat down to write this, did you hope would read this book and learn from it most? Everyone. Everyone who is not enmeshed in a disease event at the moment. It's very hard to step back from a disease event. So by and large, people who are still well or have loved ones who are facing clinical events, who have recovered from clinical events and who want to understand a little bit more, in fact, a lot more, about how they need to assume some responsibility for their own care in the current climate of American medicine. They need to be able to ask the telling questions and demand important answers. And I teach them how. 
Well, what has been your feedback of the people who have read it, both the medical professionals mainly who are listening to this particular broadcast and the lay public? What kind of feedback have you gotten and how are they using this book effectively? Worried Sick was released in June of 2008 and is being widely discussed, had a preemptive review in the New England Journal that was most gratifying and uh, some equally gratifying reviews in places like the New York Times and the Mokachi newspapers. It clearly has raised eyebrows. Now, I think in order to answer your question, I should point out that this is the second of the trilogy. The first came out four years ago and was titled The Last Well Person, How to Stay Well Despite the Healthcare System, and that went through many, many printings and garnered a fair amount of positive feedback. In fact, it helped me move along in the writing of Worried Sick, and it was widely read by an educated American audience and a fairly large audience abroad and by our colleagues. I'm aware of many medical journal clubs that took that book, and I understand that picking up Worried Sick as their medical journal club exercise, meaning that they'll take a chapter and the shadow chapter at each of their sessions. They'll read all the references and my arguments and try to find the holes in them, after all. Nothing about medical information is perfect. There always needs to be a discussion or we'll never have progress. And hopefully Worried Sick will take that exercise a level further. I've had at least one dean of one very important medical school tell me that if he could, he would assign it to the students in the first and second year, but his faculty would probably run him out of town. So it is being used in medical schools, but it's not being incorporated into the curriculum yet. We're not ready to do that. What is your opinion about this drive to do so many cabbages, angioplasties, and stents, this $100 billion business that nobody wants to get their hands around? I think it would be important as to how you evaluate this particular clinical problem that we have. I do very little in my writings to emphasize the financial issues. All of my writings are toward clinical decision-making and its ethical foundation. So there are issues with cost, but those are not the principal issues that I think about. The topic of interventional cardiology for coronary artery disease, I consider this the poster child for what I call type 2 medical malpractice. Type 1 medical malpractice, we all know about that's doing the necessary poorly. Type 2 is a concept I coined a number of years ago that's doing the unnecessary even if you do it very well. And we have a compelling data set that we do not save lives with interventional cardiology. That's coronary artery bypass, angioplasty, or any flavor of widget that you want to leave behind in the coronary artery. There is excellent data that there is no advantage to be gained. We have compelling data based on attempts to show benefit, that there is no survival benefit. Now, how do you do this to people and not tell them, by the way, I'm going to do this to you, but it's not going to do anything for survival? And the basis for calling interventional cardiology the poster child for type 2 medical malpractice is this large set of randomized controlled trials. And by the way, in the book, I, I am seldom pointing fingers at our colleagues. Maybe I should do more of that, but I consider this the folly of peer review. Interventional cardiologists and cardiovascular surgeons working on cabbages and the like peer review much more intensely how well they did it than whether they should have. And that's a folly. That's one of the downsides of peer review. We've been talking today 
about evidence-based medicine that doctors in their offices may not be evaluating all of the evidence that they have available to them and are rushing to the newest technology, mainly because it's available, the media demands it, and our patients seem to want it. I want to thank Dr. Norton Hadler, professor of medicine at the University of North Carolina, who's written this very thought-provoking book. I think all of us should look at it. I think it'll help us practice a better brand of medicine. The book is called Worried Sick, a Prescription for Health in an Overtreated America. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Dr. Derek Robinson with the American College of Emergency Physicians in Chicago. And every chance I get, I listen to the channel for medical professionals, ReachMD-XM-157.